This is the Yakazine Brief with Peter Hoffland. In this edition of the Yonkazine Brief, I'm talking with Tony Polferino, Executive Vice President, Early Development and Chief Scientific Officer at Zymeworks. Zymeworks is a clinical stage biopharmaceutical company developing next-generation multifunctional biotherapeutics. The company's lead product candidate is Zanitatumab, which is a HER2-targeted bispecific antibody developed using Zymeworks proprietary azimetric platform technology. Zanidatamap is currently being evaluated in global phase 1, phase 2 and pivotal clinical trials as the best-in-class treatment for patients with HER2-expressing cancers. Zymeworks' second candidate is ZW49, which is a HER2-targeted antibody drug conjugate. ZW49 is currently being evaluated in a phase 1 clinical trial and is also a treatment option for patients with HER2-expressing cancers. In our program today, I talk with Tony Polverino about his work in oncology, his work before joining Zymeworks, and the work he and his co-workers are doing at Zymeworks. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Oncosine Brief. The Oncosine Brief is developed in collaboration with our online journal Oncosine at oncosine.com, where you can find additional information and the latest news about cancer, cancer diagnosis and treatment, and cancer prevention. For information on how to support a program, visit our website at oncozine.com. And if you are living in the United States and want to receive our newsletter, text the word CANCER to 66866. And we will make sure that you'll receive our newsletter, which includes an overview of the latest news in oncology and hematology. This is the Oncozine Brief with Peter Hoffland. On the phone with me is Tony Polferino, Executive Vice President, Early Development and Chief Scientific Officer at Zymeworks. Earlier this year, Zymeworks highlighted preclinical data that reveals new insights into the unique mechanism of action of the company's elite clinical candidate, Zanidatumab. But before we're going to talk about that, Tony, welcome to the Yonkers in Brief. Now first, earlier this month, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention said that fully vaccinated people may be able to stop wearing a protective mask, an indication that the COVID-19 pandemic may hopefully be soon a thing of the past. But for now, the advice is to remain careful. So how are you, your family members, your team members, and the company dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, thanks, Peter. Appreciate the opportunity to chat with you today. Yeah, so just like everybody else, uh, COVID has had pretty substantial impact on us, both personally, as you said, as well as for the company. Um, I think we adapted very quickly. Uh, we're able to understand our ability to work remotely, and so we implemented a number of number of measures there. For the lab, of course, it's uh, essential that people go into the lab. It's pretty difficult to lab work remotely, uh, and so we we did have to shut down the lab temporarily, just to enable us to put in some protective measures and to make sure that we we're able to bring our staff members back safely. That was the most important aspect for us. And we did that relatively quickly. Uh, lab staff are now back in line. Uh, they're on a shift. They're able to work very productively. Um, obviously, we'd like to have uh, some of those restrictions removed so that we can have even more capacity. 
but uh, hopefully time will come with vaccinations that will be in that situation pretty clear. Now, Zymeworks is based in Vancouver, British Columbia, as well as in Washington State and other places, I believe. Now, under normal circumstances, there is, I assume, a fair amount of travel between the different facilities in the Pacific Northwest. But I guess that didn't happen, or it was not possible, during the COVID-19 pandemic because of lockdowns and border closings. Now, how do you compensate for that? It's tough, you're right. The border has been shut for now over a year. Um, Back in the old days, I, I used to travel at least every month to go up to see the staff up in Vancouver. Our headquarters are in Vancouver and we have a, an ancillary site in Seattle. Um, that hasn't happened. Uh, our company is a very is a company that's very strongly focused on the culture of collaboration, interactions and, and innovation. And I think uh, as good as Zoom and other types of meetings have been in enabling us to continue our work remotely, we certainly have missed out on that personal touch and that ability to build those relationships especially as we have been growing quite substantially over the last couple of years. And so many of our staff members, we have not had the privilege yet of being able to meet in person. But hopefully with the vaccination process going along, uh, we'll be able to get back to an in-person situation relatively soon. Let's uh, switch gears a little bit. You were originally from Adelaide in Australia, and now you're working in North America. If you compare the business, research, and academic environment in Australia with that in Europe and in the United States, how does that compare? What are some of the things that may be different or things that may be very much the same? Yeah, thanks, Peter. I mean, uh, uh, I hate to say it, I've I've been away from Australia for 30 years now. Um, I originally came over just to do a postdoc, and here I am 30 years later still here. Um, I think in, in some ways, uh, the scientific community in Australia is is similar to places in Europe and the United States in that the very strong and very productive scientific community, very good in the way of academic collaborations, et cetera. I think the area in which there are significant differences, especially in relation to the United States, is it's a small population, which means that our ability to fund Uh, Early stage companies and early stage research is much more limited there. So uh, a lot of the companies that develop in Australia are very much focused on early proof of concept, IND enabling or early phase one trials. They really don't have the financial or the infrastructure to enable them to be uh, more successful beyond that. That's slowly changing as we're becoming more of a global uh, community with respect to financing, uh, but it does represent a pretty significant impact to ensuring that those scientific discoveries are translated into benefit for patients. So in that respect, it's similar to maybe other smaller populations, smaller countries, where funding may be an issue and where populations may be smaller than here in the United States, and where people are scrambling to make sure that they can actually set up proper clinical trials with the right number of people. Is that the right understanding? A little bit. I think the the ability to do clinical trials and and to recruit in Australia is exceptionally good. There's been a number of regulatory hurdles that have been removed to enable innovative medicines to be tested in patients. I think the real difference is just the amount of money that's available to fund some of these companies beyond those early stage proof of concept studies. So, um, you know, raising 
you know, a few million dollars is doable in Australia. Um, raising hundreds of millions of dollars is almost impossible. So companies routinely will have to partner or make sure that they have other organizations in other parts of the world that are able to continue to expand that clinical development path. But I think the, the clinical development itself is a very strong aspect of some of the science that's ongoing in Australia. Well, that's very interesting. Unfortunately, here in the United States, but also in Europe, we don't generally hear a lot about Australia. Now, you have a very long background in drug development, and that's not only at Symeworks, but also at other companies where you worked on very exciting projects. Now, without sharing any confidential information, what were some of the highlights in terms of projects that you worked on? Before I joined Zymeworks, uh, I was I had a stint at, at Kite Pharma, which was an autologous cell therapy company. And I was very fortunate to be involved at Kite uh, from the very early days. And, and obviously, the, the, the biggest accomplishment we had there was being able to get approval for our, our first product, Yescada. Uh, which is a CD19-directed uh, CAR therapy for patients with B-cell lymphomas. And, and that was incredibly exciting, uh, able to do that from IND to approval in, in 27 months. But I think as I, as I tell the staff here at Zymeworks, I think the, the real value that provided for me was to, to be able to see patients respond. We had an overall response rate of something like 85% and a durable, complete response rate of 45% in those patients. And being able to be part of an organization and part of a program that is delivering that type of benefit to patients is, is just really exciting. And it's something that we all strive for in this community. And so that was great to do. And the other part of that, of course, is because it was autologous cell therapy, uh, we were actually monitoring patients in real time because we obviously had to get the cells from the patients. So we knew when they were coming on study and when we were providing the product back to those patients. So it was a fast, fascinating opportunity at, at Kite. And then before Kite, I, I had a career, a 20-year career at Amgen, as you pointed out, um, and really cut my tooth at Amgen, really learned all of the nuances and understanding the difference between uh, good science and drug development. And there are obviously a lot of aspects of drug development and drug discovery that are important. And we were very lucky to be involved. I was very lucky to be involved in a number of programs at Amgen. And maybe the one that's uh, you know most noticeable to scientific community and your audience might be the, the T-cell engaging programs that really are now starting to have a very significant impact on a, a number of different cancers uh, in patients. Let's take a break. If you're just joining us, in this episode of the Oncogene Brief, I'm talking with Tony Polferino, Executive Vice President, Early Development, and Chief Scientific Officer at Symeworks. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Oncogene Brief. Sarcoma. Odds are you've never heard that word before. But for the 40 people diagnosed with sarcoma every day, it is a life-changing word. Life-changing and devastating because sarcoma is cancer. Sarcoma is a cancer of bone and soft tissue more prevalent in children than in adults. More than 6,000 people lose their lives to sarcoma each year. Treatment options for sarcoma are limited and new therapies are desperately needed. 
More research and increased awareness is necessary to find a cure for a cancer that you probably didn't even know existed until now. Through awareness, advocacy, and research, the Sarcoma Foundation of America is determined to help those affected by this forgotten cancer, to bring hope to the children and adults whose lives are forever changed by a word they had never heard before. Please help us in the fight to find the cure for sarcoma. For more information on sarcoma and the work of the Sarcoma Foundation of America, please go to curesarcoma.org. This is the Yakazine Brief with Peter Hoffland. And welcome back. This is the Yonkersin Brief. If you're just joining us, in today's episode of the Yonkersin Brief, I'm talking with Tony Polverino, Executive Vice President, Early Development, and Chief Scientific Officer at Zymeworks. You mentioned CAR-Ts. That's a very personalized approach to the treatment based on the patient's own cells, right? Now, how did that require researchers, doctors, drug developers to think differently than they may have done with drugs that are developed in a laboratory and produced in a traditional way, made available in bulk, so to speak. How did that require a change in thinking about drug development and patient care? It really was a, a paradigm change for, for us and for the community in general. It's a little bit akin to what we're currently doing with respect to providing vaccines against COVID. Um, at the time, we had to establish a whole what we call a supply chain that would facilitate patients coming to institutions, to their oncologists, for them to be able to uh, extract cells from the patients, as you said, and then to ship it back to Kite headquarters where we would manufacture the product. That would be a a two-week process for us. And then we would have to ship it back to the patient And obviously, all of that scheduling had to occur to enable not only the patient to provide the material, but conversely, on the other end, the patient had to be available when the material was available for them for infusion. And, you know, we had to think about all aspects of that. How would we ship? What type of processes, airplanes, couriers would be required? Uh, We had to think about uh, cold storage. You know, cell therapy is even more complicated than vaccines. We had to have liquid nitrogen, and that had to be available for all of these patients uh, constantly. So that aspect of supply chain and coordination between the company and the patients was something that had never been done before. And we had to create it all from scratch. And it took a lot of people coming together to think creatively about how to solve those problems. And fortunately, um, you know, at the end of the day, the only way that that process would be successful is if you had a very successful manufacturing facility and a very successful supply chain. And I think um, when we received approval, I think we were at 97 or 99% success rate, which is obviously, of course, critical because we would tell our manufacturing staff, you know, that this may well be the only chance people have to receive this type of therapy, so we can't make any mistakes. And, and that was the basis of how we really ensured that we had a very robust process in place. That's not just in thinking outside the box, but that's developing a completely new approach uh, that also has to be foolproof without mistakes, without errors, right? 
Now, let's talk a little bit about what you're doing today at ZymeWorks. During the annual meeting of the American Association for Cancer Research, ZymeWorks presented some interesting data. Tell me a little bit about this. Yeah, so we're very excited about the potential for Xanadatamab. So Xanadatamab is what we call a, a bispecific antibody. And by that, uh, what we mean is we're utilizing uh, what we call our azometric platform. Uh, and this allows our antibody to bind two specific tar- targets on whichever target we're looking for. And in our case, um, Xanadatamab binds to two non-overlapping epitopes of HER2 uh, that are encompassed by trastuzumab and pertuzumab. Uh, and just the binding of the two epitopes alone doesn't really explain the characteristics of Xanadatamab. So as a result of that, what we call biparatopic binding nature, what we see is uh, a very significant improvement in binding to HER2 on the surface of tumor cells. That binding results in a much more substantial uh, internalization of the HER2 receptor from the cell surface, which obviously inhibits signaling from that receptor and leads to tumor cell death when we have dependency on that tumor uh, for, the, for that receptor. And so those properties really help differentiate xanadatamab from other HER2 targeting agents that are currently in clinical development. And the information that we presented at AACR this year uh, extended some of that work to show that when we have binding of xanadatamab to HER2, this results in a, a unique cluster formation on the surface of the cell. So because xanadatamab can bind two different epitopes, it, it ends up causing uh, high-order cluster formation, these sort of aggregates at the surface of the cell. And, and that by itself, we think, is responsible for the increased internalization of the receptor. But the other thing we were able to demonstrate is that cluster formation also enabled uh, CDC activity or complement-dependent cytotoxicity to occur, which is a property that is not exemplified by either trastuzumab, pertuzumab, or the combination of the two. And so we think the, you know, the collective experience there of all of those aspects really helped differentiate the activity of xanadatamab relative to other HER2-binding uh, therapies that are out there at the moment. So when we talk about HER2, a lot of people may immediately think about breast cancer and not necessarily about other therapeutic areas, other kinds of cancer. But tell me a little bit about this, because I understand that breast cancer is not your immediate focus, right? We are focusing on breast cancer. Obviously, we think that there's uh, a, a lot of potential for xanadatamab in breast cancer as well. But we also recognized that there were other diseases that were underrepresented and that we thought that the application of a HER2-targeted therapy could have a very substantial impact very quickly on those patients. And so um, we've been able to look at uh, two specific types of diseases, uh, biliary tract cancer and gastroesophageal adenocarcinoma. So these are, are tumors that respectively, obviously, in, in the, the bile and the gallbladder or associated with that. And then gastroesophageal is 
the part of the stomach and the esophagus as well. And our interest in those two areas really came because we knew that there's a proportion of those patients, respectively, that have HER2 gene amplification. For gastroesophageal and carcinoma, um, there is treatment paradigms in which trastuzumab plus chemotherapy is available as a first-line therapy. And our clinical trials to date have shown that in patients that are refractory uh, to either chemo or trastuzumab or, or a combination, uh, we have seen a very substantial improvement in overall response rate of approximately 39%, uh, a disease control rate of upwards of 60%. That was an extremely encouraging opportunity for us. And we're now looking at really extending those studies in those refractory patients, and then also looking at how we might be able to provide benefit for patients even in a frontline setting. And the FDA has agreed they've provided fast-track designation for us um, in that, that particular indication. For the biliary tract cancer, um, this is a, a more, uh, it's a smaller target population, as you said, maybe what you said could be considered a, a rarer disease. Uh, but there really is very few treatment options available for those patients. Um, really, chemotherapy is the only treatment option available apart from surgery. And again, uh, we were able to look at patients that were heavily pretreated in BTC and showed that uh, we were able to get similarly about a 40% overall response rate and uh, disease control rates, again, upwards of, of 60%. And that's very, very encouraging news for those patients that really have no other treatment options available to them. And we've also been able to get breakthrough designation for BTC. And of course, if we continue with those studies and, and the regulators approve, Xanadatabam um, may end up being the first HER2-directed therapy in that indication. So we, we think that um, the gastrointestinal type of cancers really represent a wonderful opportunity for us to provide significant benefit to patients. Of course, breast cancer <coughs> excuse me, is also something in which we know her two targeted therapies are providing a value, and we're continuing to explore that space and understand how best we could utilize Xanadatabab in a variety of different ways, whether in combination with different treatment options or uh, even, in fact, as uh, monotherapy treatment. So uh, we're looking at Xanadatamab for a number of different avenues uh, in very broadly applied in different disease settings. That's a very interesting approach. And I think what you just mentioned in this approach may help a number of patients with high unmet medical needs. So you're providing a little bit of hope for patients that are suffering from these diseases, right? Absolutely. And that's where we, we saw this. We knew that we could impact patients very quickly that really had no other treatment options available to them. And that's how we prioritized our effort, which is not to say that we don't believe that there won't be benefit in breast cancer. Uh, but those studies would take a little bit longer to, to read out. And we're certainly actively pursuing those as well. So uh, fortunately for us, you know, we have a wonderful team here on our clinical development and manufacturing side that we're able to provide material and able to set those studies up. And we're just so excited to see those early results coming out 
from both of those indications that are providing hope, real hope, for patients. Let's take a short break, and then we're back with Tony Polforino, Executive Vice President, Early Development and Chief Scientific Officer at Zymeworks. Zymeworks is a clinical stage biopharmaceutical company developing next-generation multifunctional biotherapeutics. Each day, researchers make new discoveries that bring us closer to the moment when all cancer patients can become survivors. Some days they take small steps. Others' huge discoveries lead to giant leaps forward. This progress, both small steps and giant leaps, happens with the help of clinical trials. Clinical trials are a fundamental path to progress and the brightest torch researchers have to light their way towards better treatments. And if you've been diagnosed with cancer, they may be your brightest ray of hope. Clinical trials introduce new hope in addition to the current standard of care by allowing researchers to provide participants access to cutting-edge and potentially life-saving treatments. So if you're interested in exploring new treatment options while helping to light the path for other patients, clinical trials may be the best choice for you. Speak with your doctor and visit standuptocancer.org slash clinical trials to learn more about clinical trials. Together, we can stand up for all of us. This is the Alkazine Brief with Peter Hoffland. And welcome back. In today's episode of the Oncogene Brief, I'm talking with Tony Polverino, Executive Vice President, Early Development, and Chief Scientific Officer at Zymeworks. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Oncogene Brief. In addition to Zenidatumab, you're also working on the development of other drugs, including an antibody drug conjugate, or ADC. So let's talk a little bit about some of the other products and the underlying platform technologies. Can you share something about this? Maybe I'll start with um, our ADC platform. As you said, we we do have another molecule. Uh, we call it ZW49, which is an antibody drug conjugate that is also in clinical trial at the moment. And, and ZW49 utilizes the, the Zanadatamad backbone. So it, it utilizes that hyperatopic uh, binding ability to HER2. Um, but now we've utilized uh, our conjugation technology to provide an antibody drug conjugate that we think will have value to patients. Um, and we designed CW49 on the basis of ensuring that we could increase the therapeutic index of antibody drug conjugates by uh, stabilizing the ADC while in circulation and hence trying to exacerbate the amount of toxin that is delivered to the tumor cell. And those studies are ongoing. Um, you know, we're starting to see good activity for ZW49 in a variety of different uh, uh, tumors. And we're continuing to evaluate just how best to position that. And that really, as you pointed out, speaks to our ability to utilize our asymmetric platform as is appropriate uh, to drive the backbone, the antibody component. Um, so in order to have an antibody drug conjugate be as successful as possible, there are multiple components you have to consider. One is the antibody itself. What are the properties of that antibody? 
that are going to be required to be successful. And I mentioned already that for Zanidatumab, we see increased binding and increased internalization relative to, say, a monotherapy approach. And those two attributes are clearly attributes that are important in enhancing the activity of an antibody drug conjugate. Uh, the second part is the the linkotoxin component. And as I said, we spent a lot of effort trying to enhance the stability of that linkotoxin so that we could deliver, maximally deliver that toxin to the tumor cell. Uh, so we continue our effort looking at uh, expanding our ADC platform, uh, either looking at different linkotoxins uh, which would be dependent on the disease state that we're looking for, or potentially even looking at other ways that we could think about uh, conjugation technologies between an antibody and a small molecule that might be more uh, not cytotoxic per se, but looking at um, immune modulatory activities. And so we're very focused on making sure that we can provide the best antibodies and the best linkotoxins depending on the indication that we're after. The ADC, uh, ZW49, uses zanidatumab as uh, its antibody. Does that mean that just like zanidatumab, it also has the opportunity to bind to two distinct sites on HER2? Yes, it does. So all of the properties that I mentioned for zanidatumab are retained within ZW49. Um, and, and we played specific effort to make sure that the conjugation did not affect those basic properties. So as I said, you know, when we thought about how would you maximize activity for an antibody drug conjugate, you know, enhanced binding to a tumor cell and enhanced internalization uh, were key attributes that we were looking for. And Zanadatumab, the, the antibody backbone, displays those properties. And so we use that to our advantage to develop ZW49. And, and that is uh, being exacerbated and shown that those properties are really contributing towards the activity that we're seeing with CW49, both preclinically and now in the clinic as well. Right. And the payload that you use is an Aristatin payload, which is comparable to some of the other ADCs out there. Or is this a different form of Aristatin? It is a proprietary Aristatin, but obviously from a, a basic mechanism of action, uh, it's a microtubule inhibitor and, and functions in a way similar to other Aristatins. And we thought that that was important because oristatin-based ADCs have been tested clinically and been successful. And so we're taking the positive attributes of an oristatin-binding toxin and just simply modifying them to tweak the properties so that we could deliver more toxin to the tumor cell, as I explained earlier. And so we're looking at situations where we're trying to optimize all the different components of an ADC uh, really to drive as much benefit as possible. Right now, ZW49 is being evaluated in a phase one clinical trial. Tell me a little bit more about the trial, if you can. We're still early. Uh, we're still doing dose escalation. Uh, we have seen some uh, promising anti-tumor activity. Uh, we have not yet established uh, dose-limiting toxicity or um, maximum-tolerated dose yet for that study. So we're continuing to look at dose expansion and also looking at different indications to understand how best we may be able to apply ZW49 
and really as is sort of implicit in everything that we do. Our main focus is really driving benefit to patients and substantial benefit to patients. So those studies are ongoing. We continue to explore different doses, different indications, and really understanding the overall properties of CW49 relative to, to other molecules that are in clinical development as well. Are you planning to develop other ADCs? I think you mentioned something that you're looking at different options to do that. But are you planning to start developing different ADCs in the near future? Yes, we have a number of other ADCs uh, that we're progressing through our pipeline. And we continue to evaluate the balance of what molecules we think would drive the best benefit to patients. So as you pointed out at the beginning of this discussion, um, at AECO, we also presented uh, the properties of a number of different types of pro molecules that we're interested in and we're advancing through our pipeline. And at the end of the day, we, we will have a number of different modalities, a number of different programs that we will have to make decisions on as to prioritization uh, with respect to which ones we think will have the best value for patients. I think you mentioned at the beginning of this talk that uh, we showcased uh, our efforts on looking at co-stimulatory molecules uh, as it pertains to T-cells. We know the importance of T-cells in being able to modulate anti-tumor activity. And so we have a very focused effort looking at how we can enhance the activity of T-cells using co-stimulatory molecules. We also are very interested in cytokine biology. We know that cytokines are, are very, very powerful and pileotropic molecules that have broad ranges of activities in the clinic or in patients, I should say. Um, traditionally, though, they've been hampered a little bit because they, they tend to be a little bit too good, right? And you can have some systemic toxicities in trying to treat cancer with uh, cytokine therapies. And so we, we are working on ways in which we are masking those cytokines so that they're becoming unmasked specifically in the tumor microenvironment and hence focusing the activity of those cytokines at the site of the tumor and minimizing any activity uh, in the periphery of those patients. And again, the implications there is we're going to maximize the therapeutic benefit to those patients. And then the, the third one we, we also highlighted was a new platform that is similar to what I just described with IL-12, which we're calling Protect. And in this case, again, we have a masking technology, but we incorporate a functionality into that mask so that not only are we masking the protein of interest, but as we unmask, we're providing some some benefit to, to the patients by having an uh, immune stimulatory component associated with that. So very broad and very interesting programs that we have at Zymeworks. I think there are four basic proprietary technology platforms Zymeworks has developed, right? That's correct. Um, you know, Protect was our new platform that we just unveiled at, at AACR this year. And uh, we mix and match as it's appropriate. Uh, we can use the azometric platform in fact, we do in a number of the other molecules that we develop. And, and that's really one of the aspects that differentiates us is that we have, we're not just a single platform company. 
We have multiple platforms, and those platforms are all interchangeable. And so we we design molecules based on the properties we want incorporated into that molecule, and then we pick and choose different components of those platforms to enable the biology to be driven the way we want to drive it. And they're the ones we've revealed to date. Of course, we continue to look at other biologies and other platforms that may be appropriate. And hopefully in the not too distant future, I may be in a position to talk about some of those other platforms as well. Let's take a short break and then we're back with Tony Polferino, Executive Vice President, Early Development and Chief Scientific Officer at Zymeworks. Zymeworks is a clinical stage biopharmaceutical company developing next generation multifunctional biotherapeutics. Cancer. Cancer is a complex disease, and the possibility of getting cancer is pretty scary. Unfortunately, one in two men and one in three women will get cancer during their lifetime. I'm Paul Schmidt, and this is the Oncozine News Minute. Did you know you can help reduce your own risk for certain cancers by making healthy choices like eating right, being safe in the sun, staying physically active, and not smoking? Or that you can protect yourself by following the recommended screening guidelines which can help detect certain cancers early when they might be easier to treat. To learn more, text CANCER to 66866 and we'll email you our free newsletter or visit www.oncozine.com. The Oncozine News Minute is a project of the American Association of Medical Education and Information in collaboration with Sun Valley Communication and Physicians Weekly. This is the Alcazine Brief with Peter Hoffland. And welcome back. This is the Alcazine Brief. If you're just joining us, in today's episode of the Alcazine Brief, I'm talking with Tony Polverino, Executive Vice President, Early Development, and Chief Scientific Officer at Zymeworks. Now, when you say mixes and matches where appropriate, in simple terms, and apologies for the very basic comparison, it's almost like building blocks using Legos and trying to fit them in the best possible way. Would that be an appropriate or be a very simple comparison? We use that analogy ourselves at Zymeworks. But we, we think about this as building blocks, as Legos, as you've said. Um, for the small molecule people, it's similar to sort of a, a chemistry. How do you build different components of a molecule? You take different aspects and you plug them together. And I think sometimes people forget that, you know, unlike Legos where you can just, there seems to be an endless possibility of putting different components together. Our experience has shown that one aspect that's very important is it's not just putting two things together or three things together. It's how you put them together that's also very important. And I think the the best example I can think of to highlight to maybe this audience is is Zanadatamab. Again, our our, our first product in clinical development. Um, as I said, that has two different binding arms uh, that target the same molecule. But depending on how we put those binding arms together, so depending on which Lego blocks we put together, we actually got different responses in our preclinical studies. And so we had to screen a number of different variants 
until we found the, the optimum configuration that really was driving the activity that we wanted to see. And so, again, I think that, yes, it, it's similar to a Lego. People should think of it that, that way. But it's also important to know that how you put those pieces together really makes a difference if you're trying to modulate biology in a very specific way. I understand that the place where you attach a payload to an antibody may make a big difference in the efficacy and safety of the final ADC. Is that correct? Uh, that is correct. And, you know, that we've been doing work along that lines, but there's also been a number of other companies now that over the years have shown the same effect that uh, not only what, how many molecules you put onto the antibody, but where you put them and their relationship to binding alarms is a very important component. And so you do have to systematically go through each one of those components and really understand what is the biology I'm trying to drive, uh, which molecule gives me the best activity, and which one gives me the, the biggest separation, biggest therapeutic index. And um, you just have to be very uh, vigilant and work your way through all of those components. We're almost at the end of our program. Now, when you look at the different classes of drugs that you are developing and you look at ADCs, what are your expectations for the near future? What I mean is, early this year, the Food and Drug Administration approved the 10th antibody drug conjugate, which is very exciting news, very good news for patients. But where are we going in this field? Right now, ADCs are primarily being developed in oncology and hematology, but that doesn't have to be the case, right? Well, I think for all therapeutics, whether it's an ADC or non-ADC, but I think we're understanding that um, oncology, inflammatory diseases, uh, there are a number of different diseases in which uh, it's a multifactorial process that is ultimately resulting in the disease manifesting itself. And uh, history has taught us that inevitably that uh, you have to attack multiple different components of biology to maximize activity in different indications, different settings. And so I think it's very encouraging, as you said, that um, it's taken a while for the ADC field uh, to start to, to learn from some of the lessons from the early stage process. We're now fortunately in a position where we're starting to see much more success in that space. And I think that is going to garner more and more activity, not only within oncology, but in other disease areas as well. And I think that can be complemented with molecules that don't have a cytotoxic component. Um, molecules like xanadatumab, but we're able to provide a very significant benefit in the absence of any chemotherapy arm at all. And so I think combination approaches and also specific indications. I think we'll, you'll have a need for each one of these types of modalities. And in the future, our ability to mix and match, I think, will be wonderfully important so that we can really provide benefit to patients that is going to be as substantial as possible and minimizing any side effects, toxicities that may be evident. Tony, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing some of the exciting things that you and your teams at Zymeworks are working on with us. Peter, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for the time today.
Hi, I'm Paul Schmidt, one of the many voices of the Akazine Brief and the Akazine News Minute. Give us just 60 seconds and we'll update you about the latest news and information about cancer, cancer diagnoses, cancer treatment, and cancer prevention. We'll tell you what you need to know and why it matters. For more information, text the word CANCER to 66866 and we'll email you our free newsletter or go to Akazine at www.akazine.com. The Akazine Brief and the Akazine News Minute are brought to you by Sun Valley Communication in association with Physicians Weekly and the American Association of Medical Education. In this edition of the Akazine Brief, I spoke with Tony Polverino, Executive Vice President, Early Development and Chief Scientific Officer at Zymeworks. Zymeworks is a clinical stage biopharmaceutical company developing next-generation multifunctional biotherapeutics. For more information about Zymeworks, please visit the company's website at zymeworks.com. For us here at the Oncogen Brief, we want to thank you, our listeners, sponsors and advertisers, for your ongoing support. Your support makes it possible that you can hear this program via PRX, Public Radio Exchange, and in the United Kingdom and mainland Europe via UK Health Radio. And you can also download our program via podcast and streaming media, including iTunes and Spotify. For more information about supporting the Oncogene Brief, go to Oncogene at Oncogene.com. If you're living in the United States and want to receive our newsletter, text the word CANCER to 66866, and we will make sure that you'll receive our newsletter, which includes an overview of the latest news in oncology and hematology. Thank you all, and thank you for listening. And join us again for our next episode. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Yonkers in Brief. The Oncazine Brief is produced by Sun Valley Communication in association with Physicians Weekly and the American Association of Medical Education. Support for the Oncazine Brief comes from listeners of this station and our commercial underwriters and advertisers. For more information about advertising, underwriting, and sponsoring options, visit Oncazine at www.oncazine.com forward slash underwriting. The Oncazine Brief contains health and medical-related information and is provided for educational and entertainment purposes only. The content in this program is not intended as a substitute for professional medical or health advice and does not replace your doctor's advice and guidance. Your doctor is the best person to answer questions about your personal health. If you hear something in this program that doesn't agree with what your doctor has told you, ask him or her about it.